0: Hi, this is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree.
1: This is li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha WisdomTree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss the businesses, economic and financial markets in China and Asia. Hi, welcome. Today is September 24th, 2021. Um, our guest today is Marco Pepich, Partner and Chief Strategist at Clock Tower
0: Group. Thanks for coming on, Marco. Of course.
1: So um, Jeremy, um, I think that we've been talking a lot about China, of course. But before that, uh, you know, you, you've been writing so much on China. I wish you know more people can can get uh, you know access to your writings. Uh, but tell us, uh, you know, what what's your uh, general background and what does Clock Tower do?
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on. So uh, Clock Tower Group is an uh, alternative investment management firm. And we have, uh, a, we have very deep roots in macro because uh, the founder, Steve Drobny he was very active uh, very early on in the macro hedge fund community. Um, and we have a macro seeding uh, vehicle, which is um, a very important part of our firm. But we also have other alternative investment um, uh, funds and, and investment vehicles, uh, both in venture and PE and also in China. And so, for the purposes of this, uh, you know, podcast, I think that's probably the most relevant part. Uh, in China, we're doing two things. We're, uh, we have a fund of funds, um, a long-only fund of funds, and we also are actually seeding onshore managers. And uh, the thesis behind uh, these products is very much geopolitical, if you will, and political. We expect tensions between U.S. and China to continue. But ironically, we also expect investment flows and trade to continue as well. In other words, we have, the, we have this thesis that the Cold War is a very poor analogy for how geopolitical tensions tend to articulate themselves in the economy and the markets. Uh, instead, a, a much more complicated and nuanced relationship emerges where the two rivals actually continue to trade and invest in one another. And so in order to do that in the 21st century, um, investors are going to need onshore access to China as offshore access becomes a little bit more problematic and uh, regulated.
0: When you think about who's going to, there is a lot of discussion now, you know, a lot of the China tech companies have come under pressure. And as for the sentiment, interestingly, there's a lot of people who have come in, I'd say, in the public markets and and quote-unquote buying the dip are you seeing any evidence of that? Are you seeing any sentiment change? Are people um, getting more nervous from some of your conversations? Are they looking at this as as an opportunity in the in this recent
2: stretch here? I think definitely most people have uh, gotten cautious uh, about accessing China, and I think there's multiple reasons for that. First, there's the geopolitical tensions which have you know gone on since 2018, really accelerated in 2020. Uh, following the COVID uh, pandemic. And, and then when Biden was elected, I think maybe there were some holdovers uh, expecting a reduction in tensions, and that didn't happen. <clears throat> so that's the first. The second issue is exactly the TMT carnage you know, in China and this uh, very, very intense focus by regulators against tech firms. Um, and I think um, the managers who are uncomfortable with that, the allocators who are uncomfortable with this, tend to see this in a prism of some sort of Chinese Kordakovsky moment, this moment when the country decides to eat its own entrepreneurs, to turn against capitalism in less faire economics. Um, and I don't see it that way. You know, I see this as China basically recalibrating its developmental growth model. Um, and so, but you know, it, it's going to take time to, for this to become the sort of conventional view. And I think uh, a lot of allocators are not yet ready for that. Now, are people Dip, uh, kind of buying the dip, as you said, Jeremy. I think some are, for sure, and uh, a lot of onshore managers are, in particular.
1: And if I may, I feel there is also a disconnect between reporting on China versus what's actually happening in China. I've mentioned in Twitter many times that you know the education minister was fired one week after education debacle. But when I talk to clients, you know. Almost nobody knows about it, you know. So uh, if you view the things happening in China versus you know the reporting, you you see that disconnect. And equally, uh, in terms of you know turning against private businesses, the China small cap uh, is actually doing very well. Um, so if it's a you know a blatant turning against the private businesses, that should you know take all China equity to go down. Right now, the portion that's gone down is much more on tech-centered, um, you know, companies. So, uh, but Jeremy, you know, uh, you got m- many more uh, clients on the Evergrande situation.
0: Yeah, if, if you were to say, I guess, Marco, Evergrande is obviously timely this week. Um, you know, Li Chen put out a note. She thought the equity people would be maybe wiped out with some of the restructuring. Uh, there's mo- more people are saying it's not the Lehman moment, but do you see any risks Coming from that, in terms of how they're going to get bailed out, all the political developments behind that. What are the the downsides you see from from Evergrande?
2: So yeah, we have a model for what's going to happen to the Evergrande, and I don't mean we as in our Group. I think we all do, and it's uh, what happened to the HA and A Group, uh, the restructuring, um, where yes, you know, like uh, equity owners, including the original founder, were absolutely wiped. Um, and uh, more than that, actually. So what? it's, uh, you yeah, know, they're being taken to the woodshed, if you will. And I think that's going to happen with Evergrande as well. And then you will have uh, various parts of the business basically hived off and uh, uh, overtaken by whether they're provincial SOEs, whether they're private groups. Actually, a private group, a very important private group, did participate. The Fank the group participated in the H&A restructuring. So it wasn't just SOEs. It wasn't just the state taking control of, of assets. Um, as you know the narrative will be in the US so you know it seems pretty well regulated the problem is that you know policymakers cannot really predict where things go and I and that's where I think that it's not a remote moment it's not the Volcker moment in China but it is still you know fraught with uncertainty because there is no guarantee that a complicated default slash restructuring like that of Evergrande can't go sideways. And so I do think it's appropriate for investors to be kind of cautious and to demand of Chinese policymakers proof that this is going to be handled well. Uh, So that's, that's something that we're watching very carefully.
1: Yeah, and for our listeners, I want to uh, explain a little bit. I know this morning, you know, Larry Summers is saying that uh, Evergrande is subprime and nobody knows who owes what. And I kind of mentioned that, yes, Evergrande is subprime, but the difference is that actually generally people know who owes what, even though, you know, not crystal clear, but Evergrande was already in the news for a year. And also China has restructured uh, several very large firms like the HNA Group, Huarong, uh, which is an insurance company, which is much more tapped financially than than Evergrande uh, was uh, with with the financial system. So I think uh, I think the the Lehman comparison is not really valid. Not because Evergrande is not subprime. I mean it is a very um, you know. Uh, it uses so much of short-term lending, it is subprime. Um, I do want to follow up on uh, its effect on the real estate. So what's your guys uh, assessing uh, the whole impact of Evergrande on the real estate um, sector? And, you know, the because real estate sector is, you know, 20% of China, 30% depends on your measure. Um, so what's the growth, you know, what what's the chain, chain effect that you guys are assessing?
2: So that's so that's where I would say that's where the risks are. So obviously, as you said, Warong was a bigger financial risk than uh, Evergrande. Evergrande, uh, you know, liabilities to the financial sector, everyone knows they're very low. But I think the bigger risk is one of confidence. And uh, what I mean by that is that if um, if other developers start giving discounts, which they've been discouraged by the government, and they've been basically told not to make discounts in their sales. Um, but there, there could be a point where Chinese savers, who own condos for saving purposes, decide to start you know, transitioning to the capital markets much more aggressively than um, Beijing expected or wants. Um, So there's basically, I mean, what's happening here, and this is now, you know, we've all taken a cold shower as investors. We've kind of moved off from the initial op-eds, which are always like the world is ending. And now there's been enough commentary in the markets that people understand some realities such as one, this is all basically caused by Chinese policymakers who agree with the bears. Like this is the hilarious part to me at least like, Xi Jinping agrees with Jim Chena's, you know, like he agrees that yes, too much, like half of Chinese GDP is investment and half of that is condos, like, okay, agreed. you know. And so China has been trying since 2017, at least to do something about it. Um, But the problem is that um, the whole idea was to transition savers slowly into more, more deeper and more sophisticated capital markets if you suddenly have a stampede because everybody thinks that there's this massive inventory of condos and the developers are going to start dumping their uh, inventory on the market if i own two or three condos in china which by the way doesn't make me upper middle class even it makes me just a normal human being in china you know like am i going to start selling them so that i can buy equities because that seems to be the trajectory on the the other
1: hand that means it's good for stock market, right? Don't do people realize that?
2: <laughs> no, no. So, so I think that's and that's what our onshore contacts are telling us. They're saying like, look, one of one of the things here is that the onshore um, A-share market is going to do quite well, and alpha opportunities in that market are going to be extraordinary. Uh, and I agree with that, but but at the same time, if everybody stampedes for the exits in the real estate market, I don't think that would be a positive yeah. for China, and you know, politically, it just wouldn't be positive because. That's the equivalent of our savings account, you know, starting to come down. And I think that would have massive implications for China and global markets if it is uncontrolled. And that's something that I I think Chinese policymakers have to prove to us over the next couple of weeks that they're aware of this, which I think obviously they are, but that they take it seriously, that they they don't have hubris about it. They're not just thinking like, well, no, people are not gonna start dumping condos and, and trying to sell them. It's like, okay, well, let's, you know, like, prove that
1: to me so that yeah. in, in that I op- actually can make a good comment. My own brother is in real estate business and my cousin is a is a chief engineer of a, of a very large real estate uh, firm. So, you know, I, I really know, you know, things uh, I think uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic in the sense that uh, China, when I grew up, you know, 40 years ago, the the average space that each person, you know, have is so small. Now, after 30 years of building, China's uh, average, um, you know, person's uh, space where how much they live is about the European level. That's about uh, two thirds of the American level, because, you know, Americans generally have a bigger house than uh, than, than Europeans. So I think um, uh, that's one factor. And the second factor is that um, most of Chinese, when they buy houses, there's the initial payment is very high it's usually 20 30% the kind of so called subprime lending uh just doesn't you know doesn't exist uh, in china so so for a typical chinese maybe they will try to you know sell it but it's a I think the stampede happens when they cannot um, continue to pay. I think that is much a smaller risk. But on the other hand, I do see real estate sector uh, going to haste, uh, face a significant headwind um, because you know because of of emigrant and also because uh, you know the government wants uh, see real estate high real estate price as an impediments to Chinese uh, having kids, right? Which the president is very passionate about, you know. Um, so I saw a UBS report that says you know one if you have a um 10 percent you know real estate uh, shrink in investment that will lead to about one percent uh, China's GDP growth uh, lower GDP growth so it's, it's a very crude uh, time series analysis um so my question to you is that um so you you mentioned you you're you're sitting onshore managers are they like what sectors are they pivoting to now that you see the real estate um
2: so, as you said yourself earlier, uh, small and medium enterprises are actually being favored by the government and the whole effort really is to prop prop them up. So, uh, one of the managers we talked to is looking at finding value in those small and medium enterprises that are listed on the markets. Um, the new Beijing uh, exchange, uh, we've basically been told will favor kind of the SME community, uh, more, more mid-caps. It will be something like the Russell, you know. So um, this is something that excites a lot of the managers. The other one is, of course, um, uh, the hard tech sort of innovation platform. So um, Star Index uh, has different rules for hard and soft tech firms. So if you are a soft tech firm with no revenue, you are not allowed to IPO. But if you are in the hard tech space, you are even without revenue. And so that's, and by the way, that's been the case since 2019. So we've had plenty of evidence, you know, from Chinese policymakers, what they favor and what they don't. Uh, And so that has to do a lot with um, what we call a clock tower group. We call it Green China Inc. thesis. Um, Those stocks obviously have gone absolutely parabolic um, and uh, lots of semiconductor stuff as well. This is what the Chinese uh, policymakers are focused on. To your point about the UBS analysis, yes, obviously, a 10% decline in real estate investment is terrible for China. As I said, that's like basically, um, you know, half of all of investment in China is just real estate. But that also assumes that nothing comes to kind of, you know, follow it through. And and I've been asked a lot by allocators um, in the U.S. and and Canada and, and abroad. I've been asked like, but what else can they invest in? You know, like what can China invest in? It's built the ports, it's built the railroads, it's built the airports, it's built the condos. It's like, yeah, well, it's gonna now re-electrify the entire country. That, that, and by the way, not just China, the whole world will do that. According to some estimates, for us to hit uh, climate change goals by 2050, we're gonna need $130 trillion worth of CapEx on the planet. That assumes new mines to extract cobalt and lithium, which we do not have. We don't have supply chains for any of the goals. Like GM is going to only produce EV vehicles by 2035. Good luck with that, with the current infrastructure and the current supply chains. China has plenty to invest in. um, And I think that that's where it's going to, that's where it's going to shift its focus
1: yes no thank you to uh, to hear and for our listeners because china you know uh, um uh, you know not uh, not uh, all the details of you know, unknown. So the star uh, board is similar to Nasdaq in China. Uh this new Beijing stock exchange is specifically uh started at lightning speed, uh, you know, by by it's favored by the president to provide the capital to um mid uh, small mid companies. And for the starboard you mentioned that, you know, for it's been for a while that these technology no profit companies can list. And I actually tweeted out that uh Another thing that's uh, underreported in the U.S. is that there's potential for the first ever uh, VIE structured company, Chinese company, to list in stock. That that implication means you know this whole idea that uh, VIE is out to cheat uh, foreign investors, the thesis is is not because they are going to let them you know. Um, Potentially list in Starboard, so that Chinese onshore investors could access uh, the company. Now it's not yet a you know final deal. How how this structured? Maybe that they putting extra protection for onshore investors, you know, versus offshore. But all I'm saying is that a lot of the ret- rhetoric on China is not matched by what's actually happening on the ground.
2: Well, actually, uh, we're we're kind of excited by delisting of Chinese equities. Um, in the U.S. Um, as a firm. <clears throat> you know? yeah, You're I, certainly on the I mean. outlier. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, let me explain what I mean. Like, We, are, we, we built our business uh, in China with this very geopolitical macro view of the world. We don't think China and the U.S. will be friends. We think the tensions will continue, if not get worse. But as I said, our model for what the relationship is going to look like is not the Cold War. This kind of a bipolar Cold War structure is unique in human history. It's very rare that you have two countries that neatly decouple the entire planet into two kind of camps. This has rarely happened in human history. A far more likely outcome is a very messy multipolar world where alliances shift, such as this AUKUS, um, you know, um, I'm trying to find an appropriate adjective for it. Mess, (laughs) You know, we're like basically U.S., China, and Australia, uh, sorry, U.S., France, and Australia now all hate each other. That's the world you should expect. That's the world that preceded World War I. That's the world that preceded World War II. And that's the world where America doesn't get to isolate China, not because China does anything smart, but because its own allies stab America in the back. So U.S., uh, De-lists equities uh, from New York Stock Exchange, you think Singapore or New- or Hong Kong or Frankfurt are not going to step in, or US bans exports of Boeing aircraft to China. The very next day, I guarantee you, France is going to call Beijing and say, how many airbuses do you need? And by the way, I've been telling that joke for a long time, <laughs> um, like before the AUKUS uh, fiasco. So. This is a world in which actually delisting of Chinese equities from Europe's Stock Exchange is kind of exciting because it means that investors, especially institutional allocators, are going to have to access China in more convoluted ways. And that's going to actually make it really uh, beneficial for those of us who have the uh, know-how and understand how Chinese access points work. So if I could use an analogy here of pipelines, Um, If you think of a pipeline between U.S. and China, you know, transporting some sort of investment flows, will those investment flows decline? Yes, for sure. Like China, U.S. don't like each other. Investment flows will absolutely decline. They won't be 100. They might be at a 70 or a 60. But what's really exciting to me is that the pipeline itself will shrink and become more complicated. And what that actually means is that the pressure in the pipeline will increase, allowing really creative Allocators and creative managers to harvest considerable alpha in that geopolitical risk premium that will keep others away. For, for
0: the big tech companies, I mean it's clearly things are going towards the hard sectors versus what you what we call sort of the Alibabas and Tencents. If they're, if they're more soft sectors, the US ADRs, but now they obviously they have they have the Hong Kong listings. You, in one of your notes, you talked about how their valuations are all-time lows, basically. I mean, they, they used to be much higher multiples, quote-unquote cheap stocks. People um, are worried about them, obviously. What do you think would be the catalysts? You gave a few catalysts that could be the spark that turns the, the sentiment around in the, in,
2: in the short run. Well, I think, the first and foremost, uh, Chinese policymakers seem intent to use monetary policy to um, deal with the sort of deceleration in growth. Um, I often compare Beijing today to Washington DC in 2009. You know, there's this real sense that they need to just use monetary policy, less fiscal. Um, Chinese and American policymakers both learned different lessons of the last cycle. Americans learned that they didn't stimulate enough. Chinese, um, you know, took the lesson they stimulated too much. So. We expect uh, further easing from the PBOC, including more RR cuts and also rate cuts. And that's gonna be interesting because it will mean that China will be going against the US and really against the grain globally on monetary policy. Also, we expect more uh, repo uh, liquidity injections over the course of the next uh, several months. So we would expect to see more of that as well. And that's already been happening. Um, Now, why do I mention this when you ask me a question about ADRs? Well, tech companies, like, if, I, if, I, if we got the sort of default setting of Chinese policymakers right, if we are right that they are basically, um, you know, going to favor monetary policy rather than fiscal policy, then it means that China will be kind of in this disinflationary, tepid cycle, which will really favor long-duration assets like big tech. And so even though there's been a carnage with big tech getting hit, the actual macro and policy setting really does favor them, at least for the next six to 12 months. Um, On top of that, you have some other realities, such as the fact that Alibaba, Tencent are pretty good businesses. Uh, Also, Tencent is, I think, much more relevant from a national security perspective than a lot of people think. Um, I think that they're the closest, along with Facebook, to achieving some form of a metaverse which I think is really relevant. If I was running China, I wouldn't want to hurt the one company that is likely to bring metaverse into existence. Um, and so I think that there's also some reasons why, you know, there can be a little bit of a pullback in terms of regulatory scrutiny. But just for that, just for valuation reasons and the macro context reason, I think it's okay and appropriate, uh, give you know, depending on your risk tolerance uh, to bottom fish in these assets.
1: Um, I also want to add that you know Tencent's role in Chinese society, even by government, uh, is very deep. I I made a joke. Um, it's not joke. It's news that uh, in Shanghai, you know, one of the consumer bureau went to um, TikTok's office and gave them a lesson. And then they said, "You guys need to use Tencent's platform to promote more consumer protection." <laughs> you know, it's like telling you know telling YouTube to use. Uh, Facebook uh, to to tell a better you know story. So you know, Tencent is used by by the government. Uh, you know, widely. Um, for 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 all the all the things they want to c- communicate, uh, because the centrness of people who use WeChat and and gotten the news through WeChat. Um, I I have a um, another question is that uh, what are the sectors specific sectors that you know you mentioned the the companies the, the onshore managers they are favorable right now?
2: Uh, industrials, materials, energy. Um, those are the sectors that we hear a lot about. And that's because of this big, you know, and, and I mean, again, I'm not saying nobody's bottom fishing tech, but that seems to be more like a trade uh, given the valuation uh, rather than an in investment pieces. And um, why energy materials and uh, industrials? Well, because the Chinese government clearly has a policy of, you know, intentionality in what it's doing. And that intentionality really comes from a number of different reasons. One, I think the competition with the U.S. Um, just favors, you know, hard tech companies. And uh, a lot of folks out there talk about cybersecurity, they talk about AI, they talk about like drone swarms. This is all cool and fun and you know science fiction-like. But the fact of the matter is, for the next 10 years wars are still going to be fought and won by planes, trains and automobiles. Okay, so like, yes, maybe in 2040, some AI drone swarm will matter. Like, you know, relax, we're not there yet. You still have to put a cruise missile into an aircraft carrier. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the ability to deliver a cheeseburger at 3 a.m. is just not really a national security priority to Beijing. You know, it's just like, okay, cool, you know, like, great. And so that's why they have um, they have darkened towards anything that's a business innovation firm. Like, you know, you take a cab and then you innovate through digitization and you get an Uber or Diddy. Like great, like that's yeah, neither here nor there. And this is interesting because a lot of folks in the U.S. have missed this, you know, because they basically drank from the Kool-Aid of a lot of like tech futurists. And like Beijing hasn't, for good reason, again. I, I study geopolitics and wars very carefully. It's part of my, it's care, uh, part of my um, methodology, and I can tell you, there is no way that cybersecurity and AI are going to decide the winner of the next confrontation in the next 10 years. So yes, yeah, cybersecurity matters more and more, but you still have to put men with weapons onto a territory to win wars. So that's number one. The second issue is that I think China looked at the last 18 months of U.S. politics and is absolutely aghast. Uh, I think China saw the social justice protest in the uh, middle of 2020. I think China saw the January 6th uh, uh, you know, like revolt where US Capitol was stormed and American senators and representatives were hiding under chairs and tables. China saw that and said, what is going on over there? And I think that they themselves then took a cold shower and said like, yeah, maybe the American developmental growth model is not really one we should follow. And in particular this obsession with tech doesn't really help us because of two reasons one uh, there is no evidence that tech has enhanced productivity growth in the u.s zero now again tech evangelists keep saying oh you're measuring it wrong yeah i don't think we are i think robert gordon knows how to measure productivity and the point is that tech productivity gains in the 90s and early 2000s have already been captured Now we're just creating really good businesses that have monopolies, but they're not actually adding to productivity. That's a problem for China. China needs to keep having productivity gains if it's going to escape the middle income trap. The second issue is that tech uh, innovation and tech firms don't resolve income inequality at all. They might even exacerbate it because again, it's a winner take all type of a business. So I think that China looked at US politics over the last two, two years but really longer, and said, wait, why are we trying to replicate that? Do we want the January 6th on our hands in five, 10 years because income inequality gets too uh, crazy and because people are reading all sorts of nonsense on on social media? And I think they said no. Um, And I think that what they've concluded is that Germany and Japan are far better, far better models for a country like China than the United States of America is. And again, I agree with it, if I was, consulting with Xi Jinping, I would have told him, yeah, why are you trying to replicate the US? It's nonsense. You're not at that level of development. What China needs is manufacturing sector. It employs people. It, it pays them well. Productivity gains in manufacturing tend to outperform service sector economies. Um, and chi- China should not be like running away from a, a developmental model that worked.
1: Um, actually, I wanted to ask it you probably pay so much more attention on China than I do, uh, even though I am trying to catch up. How do you uh, look at um, the China? Uh, first, I want to add, I, I, uh, me being in the U.S., I you know, want to defend U.S. in some way. I, I think U.S. is also moving toward a heart attack. Uh, if you look at the kind of STEM schools, the the, the emphasis in my own kids' education, you know, uh, um, I think uh, U.S. Uh, is also, um, you know, putting significant resources in industrial, you know, technology and, by, you know, by, by, by tech, um, you know, investment. But what I'm saying is like when you uh, um, look at China, uh, it's a political, uh, how do you do the research? Like how do you get to, you know, be so, you know, ahead of others, in terms of knowing what's going on there?
2: Well, I don't know if, if we're ahead of others. Uh, we, we have some you know wins, we have some losses, as everybody else does. Um, I think with China, we really do two things. Uh, first, we have a great network in China. Uh, we've been in China for a long time, and um, unlike most folks, we don't really try to talk to policymakers or journalists or political commentators. We love to talk to managers, 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 managers. Why? Because Chinese managers are like any other managers. They're trying to get the markets right. And to get the markets right, you got to get the policy right. And, um, you know, this is my own experience as well. My career started in the political risk consulting business. And the reason I left that business is that I felt that a lot of folks who are political commentators who think about politics tend to BS a lot. You know, like, how do you measure success of a political forecast? If you say Turkey will experience a significant turmoil over the next 12 months, well, hell, you know, anything that happens in Turkey, you can pretty much say you got it right. But when you're in financial markets, when you're in financial markets, you have to put your money where your mouth is. And that's why I think financial markets are actually better at predicting political outcomes and why people who are very sensitive to political and policy, Issues tends to get things right and that's why Chinese managers are actually a great source of information about where policy is headed so we had um, you know a lot of Information coming in in q1 of this year that income inequality was becoming a bigger issue in China And also that there will be a crackdown against a number of sectors now to, to my like to my mistake I, I ignored some of this because I said who cares about tutoring sector? Like, how is this like relevant to me? You know, this is so micro. But actually it was, it was really relevant. So that's the first issue. It's not that we have great network in China. Everybody says that. I think we have a great network in China because we talk to the right people. The other issue is that uh, my framework that I've used for the past, you know, over a decade is one where you really focus on the material constraints that policymakers have in front of them. And that allows us to filter a lot of the incoming insights that we get and kind of separate those that don't matter that are just irrelevant you know so i'll give you an example of this when president xi makes a speech about taiwan that is on the front pages of financial times and wall street journal like i i don't really care what he thinks about taiwan i i couldn't care less and the reason i say that is because wrote very similar speech in 2001 just as aggressive if not more but more importantly I think that China's massively constrained over the next five to ten years. It's constrained by its domestic politics, by its domestic economy, by the challenges we're talking today, and also by the fact that it's going to require export markets to transition into some sort of a domestic consumption economy, especially because its domestic consumers are leveraged. I, I don't see China being able to smoothly implement its dual circulation strategy. It's going to continue to depend on export markets.
1: Yeah, no, it, Ch- absolutely. China's uh, dependency, you know, in the last two years, it's been, you know, during during the, uh, it, you know, it, without the export sector, it, you know, the economy will be significantly worse. And. And I totally agree. I think uh, I'm also like you. I a lot of people, you know, read the Chinese uh, speeches, but that's not my method, and that's not my framework as well. I try to look at it from the economist point of view and talk to businesses on the ground. So my background is that you know I grew up in Zhejiang province. So for any anybody who knows about China, you know, I mentioned Zhejiang, they all understand what that means. Uh, it's yeah. the center of you know ex state owned business. Um, I just talk to people uh, in some of and I have 21 first cousins I just talked to them and how their business is operating so for example this common prosperity all the uh, you know newspapers on common prosperity Zhejiang province was asked to be the experimentation place for this common prosperity so my own father and you know brother they are relatively well off they are going to be you know the ones who who's going to have to take a hit on on the common prosperity uh, but so far you know I talked to them None of them is saying that, you know, the government is coming here and taking the money away of the rich. Um, So I think there's a very big, big disconnect. And I'm like you, I like to talk to managers and businesses, you know, more than anybody. Uh, When the education uh, regulation issue happened, uh, we talked to our hospital. Um, they were very, you know, remember on, on social media, they were they were very worried because healthcare could be next, right? So when I talked to them, they told us, no way because, you know, healthcare regulation already happened two years ago. It's just in the U.S. nobody was writing about it. You know, the healthcare stocks took a huge hit um, and then recovered. So, um, you know, absolutely. I, another thing is that, um, you know, like you uh, I also pay attention to PBOC like how do you um, you know uh, pay attention to PBOC
2: research? well um, you know we we read like everyone else we read a lot of the um, uh, academic papers that the, that people associate with the PBOC publish we keep a track of what the PBOC is saying but I think the difference between the US and China is that PBOC is much more much less independent. Um, and so that's that's an important point. Um, I think the the other issue is that I think they're tr- they're very transparent in what they say, and so we are you know comfortable basically following what they say and you know believing them if you will. Um, I also think that in a way monetary policy might be overstated. I think in today's world, um, and I think not just in China but also in the U.S. Um, you know you you can see for example with the FOMC meeting. Uh, the other day, where they had like a sort of a hawkish surprise, but the assets didn't really react in the same way, and that's because I think investors react more to the macro context that is revealed by monetary policy moves than in the monetary policy moves themselves. Uh, I don't want to expand on that because we're obviously talking about China, but I think that in China, it's kind of the same. I think PBOC is going to be the second derivative, not necessarily the first.
1: Thank you. Um, I, and to add on that, you know, PBLC governor, the current governor uh, is educated uh, in the U.S., you know, got his tenure uh, in the U.S. Then went back. So he is very familiar. I have, uh, you know, a little bit, um, you know, personal um uh, 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 connection because we all went to the same college. Um, he, uh, he. So I think uh, he is definitely uh, in terms of communication is much more transparent than any other government uh, institutions in China. Um, uh, Jeremy, so thank you so much. Do you, um, do you have any uh, anything to add for for you know for all the China uh, discussion we've been missing?
0: Marco, I think this has been fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Great to get another local perspective of what's happening and and your your thesis on the green energy, the the move towards atoms over bits, I think is always very interesting to stay in touch with. So thanks so much for for sharing your, your perspective with our, our listeners here.
2: Always a pleasure.